Our text is 1 Samuel, chapter uh, 12, and read silently along this time as I uh, read the text. 1 Samuel, chapter 12, a selection of verses. Hear now, if you will, the word of the Lord. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is a witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Flesh and dwelt among... Oh, looks like we've got a little... Here, let me go to... I want you to get that verse. I'm going to read, start a reading from verse 4. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And now let's go to verse 19 in your text. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your king, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There were four factors that led me to choose this text to preach on uh, this week. First, I'm, I'm reading now through the Bible's historical books. And I just reread this story, and it just really captures my attention. Second, this is, of course, the last Sunday in 2013. And uh, this uh, story really conveys great truths for ending our year. And then I've been thinking about Axel's life story of God's faithfulness that he gave. And Samuel's account at its root sounds a lot like And then finally, I always like to preach about the family the last Sunday of the month, and this account relates also to the family. So I said, there are four good reasons to preach on this passage, and I'm going to do that. This uh, is near the end of Samuel's life. Samuel, most of you know, was a great and godly prophet in Israel. He anointed the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. He saw great triumph in Israel and great tragedy, and he was God's man. And in this chapter, if you read the whole thing, he offers his valedictory, kind of like his farewell speech. 
He's going into retirement, as it were. He's getting his gold watch. Not really. But he's going into retirement, as it were. Not from God, but from his role as a prophet. And he kind of recounts what God did for Israel and what God is doing for Israel and what God will do. It's a very solemn, it's a very powerful sermon. And it contains truths that should shape our lives. I want to just expound three or four of them today. First, Samuel was, uh, if you'll see there, as you'll see in the beginning, was called by God from a very child. If you recall the story in 1 Samuel 1, his mother begged God to give her a child. She had been barren. She had been reproached by her husband's other wife for not having children. And she made a vow to God. She says, God, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. And here's the language that she used. This is translated. All the days of his life. All the days of his life. Well, God heard her prayer, her agonizing pleas, and he gave her a son. And sure enough, she fulfilled uh, her vow to God. Uh, She weaned Samuel, and then she took him to the temple, the Lord's temple, and and to Eli, the older prophet of God. And uh, in due time, God revealed himself to Samuel as a young boy, not as an older man, but as a young boy. And Samuel served God as a prophet in Israel all the rest of his days. Now note carefully what Samuel said in verse 2 that we read there in your bulletin or in your Bible. He says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Think of that testimony. Samuel challenged the Jews to indict him for any public scandal or any grave sin. And they couldn't do it. They said, the Lord is a witness here. Have I taken anything from you? Have I oppressed you? Have I been faithful? They said, the Lord is a witness. Yes, indeed, you've been faithful. Samuel was not sinless, but he was godly. Now, that's an important distinction I want you to remember. Just because we can't be sinless doesn't mean we can't be godly. Does everybody hear that? Because some people think, well, you know, I'm just a poor old lost sinner, and, which is true. And God saved me in his grace, which is true. And therefore, I'm just going to keep on sinning and sinning and sinning. And I can't really be godly, but God understands I'll just keep sinning and live a life of sin, and it'll be okay because I'm a sinner. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Yes, we are sinners, but God, the Holy Spirit, changes people's hearts and lives. Yes, we can't be sinless, but we can be godly. And Samuel's very life, his entire life, was an example and a testimony of that godliness. Now let's explore this fact for just a minute. Samuel started walking before God as a child, and he never stopped. That's what he says. And he never stopped. His faithfulness was lifelong. He didn't depart from the living God as a, as a teenager. As a teenager. There were no teenagers in those days. You know, realize that teenager is a distinctly modern category, right? It's a made-up category. Actually, late in the 19th century, early 20th century. We now have people walking around called teenagers. We just call them that. Nobody historically would have. Teenagers like, oh, you're a child. And then there's, there's a new kind of life. The teenage life. And then there's the next kind of life, the the 20-something life. And then there's the next kind of life, the 30-something life. And then there's kind of like the middle-aged life. There was none of that. There was none of that. Samuel didn't go wild as a teenager and later settle down and come back to the Lord. He walked as a godly man before the Jews from his youth. 
until that very day. Now, this is what I want to say. This is normal Christian living. This is an exceptional Christian living. This is normal Christian living. I have many friends, including some of you here today, that have lived that sort of life, lifelong obedience. Not perfection, but obedience. Your parents brought you up in the gospel and the church and the faith, or at least at a very young age. You don't recall a time when you weren't nourished in the gospel? No, you're not sinless. You needed the gospel like we all do, but you've learned a great lesson. God's preventive grace is even greater than his recovering grace. You can say amen to that. Grace is displayed in an even greater way when God keeps a little child from a life of depravity than he, when he rescues a man or a woman from a life of depravity. Do you understand that? It's better to be preserved from immorality and drunkenness and covetousness and drug addiction and hatred and on and on than to be rescued from those things. God's gracious in both cases, of course, but God's preventive grace is even greater than his recovering grace. And if you want to know why we at Cornerstone <coughs> make abundant allowances for children, <coughs> if you want to know why, in, why we invite them to worship with us, and why they'll cry here and there, and, 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 yes, and, and we don't go, oh my gosh, no, that can't happen in our church because somebody might... If you want to know why, it's because God's preventive grace is greater than his recovering grace. And why we have a lambs group. And why we baptize these little guys. And why we invite them to communion. Because we want them one day to say with Samuel. That from a youth. I've been faithful to the Lord by his glorious grace. But I must say Samuel's testimony is an example to all the people of God. No matter how old you were. When you started following Jesus. And the message is this. We're charged to follow God totally. All the time. Every time. And all we do. That's the message of Samuel. Now, we live in a secular culture, you've noticed that, haven't you, uh, such that it seems like a different world from the church and the Christian family that we inhabit. People would use the term a different conceptual universe. It's like we're walking in a science fiction film from one, a universe of godliness into a universe of ungodliness. And where we're out in the world, it saps us of our Christian courage. It often saps us of our vitality if we're not careful. Filthy jokes seem less filthy. Sexual sins seem less sinful. Honesty in business seems less important. Training your children to love and serve God seems weird and radical. Remember this from David Wells. I've quoted this a couple of times. This is one of those powerful aphorisms or statements. Worldliness is anything that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Man, think about that for a minute. Worldliness is anything that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And if we look at righteous people or righteousness, I'm like, oh man, that's just kind of weird. Well, yeah, well, everybody knows that's sin. I mean, people say it's sin, but it's not that bad. That is worldliness. Today we often talk about the sacred and the secular, but that's a false distinction. The actual antithesis is the one that our forefathers understood. There's only the sacred and the profane. Think about that. The sacred and the profane. If it's not sacred, if it's not given to God, if it's not in harmony with God's word, it's profane. It's contrary to God's will. Now, friends, we live our entire lives before the face of God. Nothing we do, nothing we think is hidden from him. Nothing. The entire universe out there is God-conditioned. Everywhere we go, 
God confronts us. All of our life is designed to worship and glorify Him. There's not any area of our lives where we can say, this is mine. This is mine. God, you have no rights here. I can do as I please. No. Not our thoughts, not our money, not our sex lives, not our entertainment, not our vocation, not our vacation, not our children, not our grandchildren, not our music, not our words, nothing. Like Samuel, we're called to be totally faithful to the triune God. Somebody says, but Andrew, that's very hard today. It's always been hard. (laughs) We live in a sinful world. It wasn't even easy for Samuel. It's always hard. But by God's grace and by his mercy, we can do that. Now, I want you to notice one act of faithfulness that Samuel mentions in verse 23. Did you notice that when we read it? He said, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by... Did you see what he said? Verse 23. That I should sin against the Lord by... Ceasing to pray for you. Samuel knew the power of prayer. He saw it in his own family. Uh, He got here by prayer. His mom prayed earnestly. She poured out her soul to God. That's probably where he learned to pray. He also knew that not praying is a sin. Now he was a prophet, a shepherd in Israel. The Jews were in this sense under his spiritual care. If he didn't pray for them... He shirked his responsibility. Now today I must say we have plenty of CEOs leading churches, CEOs in the pulpit, but we don't have enough shepherds. We need fewer CEOs and more shepherds. Now a very large congregation, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with having, as it were, a sort of CEO for the congregation. I understand all of that, but they shouldn't be the shepherds. The shepherds are the people who care for the souls of those under their care. We need elders who hold their sheep before the throne. I certainly have sinned in this area. I haven't always prayed for you as I should have. I try. By God's grace, he's helping me do that. And you fathers and mothers, you're charged to pray for your children. And husbands, you're required by God to pray for your wives. Please don't overlook the force of this passage, my dear friends. Samuel says that he sins if he refuses to pray for Israel. It's not just a bad idea. He sins. We sin if we refuse to pray for one another. In other words, this is a Christian duty that we have for each other. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is what we owe to one another. And if you here have great needs, you can, as it were, go up individually to one of your brothers or sisters and say, please pray for me. And I would remind you, you're required of God to pray for me. I need your prayer so badly. Please pray for me. And you know what you're required to say? I will pray for you. Because we sin against God if we do not hold our brothers and sisters up in prayer. That's how important prayer is for one another. Then finally, Samuel's exhortation here in verses 6 through 17. Samuel exhorts the people. Uh, Don and I were talking this week and we were discussing the role of the church and its leadership in staying true to the message of the Bible. The job of the leaders of the church isn't to conform to the culture, but to confront the culture's sin lovingly, very graciously, not in a mean-spirited way, lovingly, but firmly. If you read Samuel's words here, you see how very clear and forceful they are. Did you notice that? Very clear. Gracious, but very clear and very forceful. He's saying, God did great things for you, and you sinned, 
But when you repented, God forgave you and God restored you. And then I love verses 13 through 15. Did you get these? If you will, here's the promise. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, all, it will be well. That's not a health and wealth gospel. It's not like, you're just going to get a bunch of cars and homes. That's not what he's saying. It'll be well. God will take care of you. God will protect you and provide for you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, this is just as true of Jesus' church. This is just as true of the New Testament writers, who basically said the same thing. Paul said much the same thing in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you will of the spirit reap life everlasting. That's basically the same thing. Paul, in the New Covenant, says basically what Samuel said in the Old Covenant. Now, here's the key. <coughs> God doesn't give his commands to hurt us, but to help us. He's our designer. Therefore, he knows what enhances and what distorts the design. Whenever we disobey God, we don't just break his heart. We break the design. We break his design for us. We hurt ourselves. Which leads me to this point. God loves us so much that he refuses to let us hurt ourselves without going to extraordinary lengths to stop us and to get us back to where we should be. That's how much God loves his people. He goes to extraordinary lengths to get them back. In fact, the most weighty lesson we can learn from Samuel's farewell address here is not our faithfulness, though they're, notice the people are called to be faithful. Not our faithfulness, but whose faithfulness? God's faithfulness. Our faithfulness is only possible because of his. I love, he says in verse 7, I plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Now, you may have noticed something odd if you think about that. This is why it's important to read the Bible closely. Notice that expression, the Lord's righteous deeds. Now, notice Samuel didn't speak of God's grace or his mercy or his kindness, but his righteous deeds. Of course, God is gracious. Of course, God is kind. Of course, God is merciful. But he's gracious in his righteousness. Let me explain what that means. So this is the main, if you missed everything and forget everything else, remember this. Samuel is saying that God does right by his people. Now, we often miss this. We often don't think covenantally. Because we don't think covenantally, this fact of God's character is sort of invisible to us. We often think that God acts sentimentally. Now, we often do that, don't we? We see a, a sad story on TV and we start crying. Or somebody asks us something. And we just act very sentimentally and say, oh, my heart is, I remember back when I was that age. And it was so hard. And we get very sentimental. When we think about the pre-digital world and our thoughts drift back. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's not what Samuel is talking about. God isn't a sentimentalist. When he willingly bound himself to his people, in covenant with his people, he bound himself to act in a certain way. That's the point. God isn't arbitrary. 
He acts according to his righteous character. He lovingly entered into covenant with his people, Israel, and now us. This means that when he loves and protects and disciplines and forgives and restores us, he's doing what he covenanted to do. To do. He's doing right by his people. God isn't just being nice. That's what I want to point out to you today. God isn't the nice God. We don't serve the nice God. We serve a God far greater than a nice God. We serve a covenant-keeping God. And the covenant-keeping God is much greater and much kinder and much more powerful than the nice God. And this is why even though Israel sinned in demanding a king, God didn't turn his back on his people. They confessed their sin in verse 19. See Samuel's response. Do not be afraid. Isn't that beautiful? God showed his power, and they were afraid. He said, do not be afraid. Why? God is bound to forgive if we confess our sins. And he loves to forgive his repentant people. That's not God's being nice. That's part of his character. That's who God is. Do you understand that God acts according to his character? And that's better than God being nice. That's better than God being nice. He acts according to his character. And this is why God is relentless in his faithfulness to his people. Even when we sin against him, he brings, he works to bring us back. He reminds the Jews here, Samuel does, that, that uh, he sold, that God sold them into captivity. Not to harm them, not to harm them, but to press them to repent and to, to turn to him. <clears throat> Think of this. God doesn't get fed up and annoyed and abandon his people. Now that's what we often do. We, somebody does something to exasperate us. And we throw up our hands, and we complain, and we say, finally, I am through with you. And we turn our back, and we leave. Yes, even when God says things like this, and he does say things like that occasionally. He does say things like that in exasperation. He does. He always seems to relent. He said that to Israel before. Finally, they send and send and send, and God, as it were, throws up his hands, and he says, I am through with you. But guess what? After a while... A godly man comes along and says, Lord, please don't do that. Remember your covenant promises. And he relents. He's a covenant-keeping God. He loves to perform righteous deeds for his people. He'll move heaven and earth, heaven and earth to rescue his people. And this is why Samuel says the Lord will not abandon his people because he wants to uphold his great reputation in verse 22. That's how the NET Bible puts it. And that's essentially what the translation means. The Lord won't abandon his people because he wants to uphold his great reputation. Let me put it this way. God has his reputation to think about. And that's why God's people in the Bible again and again don't pray sentimental prayers to God. You don't see people in the Bible praying, God, you're a nice God. Please be nice to us. A thousand times, no. They pray, God, you're a covenant-keeping God. You've bound yourself to us. You're bound by your own character to help me, oh God, to help us. God, I remind you of your covenant to your people. If you don't come through, imagine how your reputation will be ruined in the presence of the wicked. They'll scoff at this God that he can't rescue his people. God, be faithful to your covenant. Be faithful to your character. Those are the prayers that God answers. God is not a sentimentalist. God isn't a nice God. He's much, much more. He is a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God. That's the God we love and serve. That is the God that we love and serve. The God that Samuel spoke of in his last public sermon. Let us pray. Father, we know that you do not show yourself in the Bible as merely the nice God. 
but as the true covenant-keeping God that will move heaven and earth for your people. Not because we have been worthy, O God, but because of your sovereign love and grace for your people. And God, we know it's shown most of all in sending your Son, who shed the blood of the new covenant to secure us finally and forever, and in his glorious resurrection. (coughs) O God, please help us from the smallest children. O God, may they be able to say they were brought into the world nourished in the gospel and in their family and in the church by their elders who taught them the word and grow up and follow you all the days of their life. And Father, do this also for us adults. May we recognize, O God, your utter goodness. And Lord, we pray that as we enter this new year that we would bask, O God, in your good faithfulness to us. And we would be faithful to you, O God, because you have been so faithful to us. So, Father, I pray a prayer of dedication as we enter this new year, that this congregation would recognize your goodness, your faithfulness, which is ground in inextricably in your glorious, covenant-keeping, white-hot character. We're so grateful for it, O God, that you go to all lengths to preserve and protect your people. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and King. Amen. Don's going to come and lead us in prayer, our prayer time. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew, uh, Andrew often will uh, 